The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. And a very big welcome to this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. This is actually episode 21, the Tucked Away edition. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. We've got plenty to talk about. We even have a listener question at the end to wrap it all up with. Let's jump in and have a look at how the markets went first, and then we'll discuss a few topics for the week. So the ASX 200 actually did end the week up. It was up 1.9%. So it's been a sort of up and down, up and down for over the last few weeks. I think it's important to sort of step back every now and again on this podcast and look at how the markets are traveling, not just on a weekly basis, of course, but sort of over a longer time period, such as like year to date. Otherwise, you kind of you, you just kind of lose a little bit of perspective over the weeks. Year to date, the ASX 200 is still it's still down about 9.8%, so that almost down 10% there for the year. I mean, the story is actually a little rosier if you're in the US. You know, so for the week, the S&P 500 was up 1.2%. The NASDAQ actually was down. It was down 1.1%. But year to date, the S&P 500 has almost fully recovered it's only down about 1% for the year so far. And the NASDAQ is the one that has kind of defied everyone as we sort of talked about. And it's actually up 20% for the year. So what coronavirus? No one cares over there, which is crazy because it seems like they're in a much more dire straits than us here in Australia. But their markets are not reflecting that, of course. But it's really been pulled up, at least the markets, sorry, have been pulled up in the US by some of those really big tech giants that, you know, they make up the majority of the index weighting especially for something like the NASDAQ. Well, again, we are continuing to actually react and respond to domestic concerns regarding COVID-19, of course. I think just yesterday when I was putting some of these notes together, I noted that New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian sort of put further restrictions in New South Wales, so not just to pubs, but cafes, clubs, restaurants. And the latest stats I saw in Melbourne, I know that there was 427 new cases in the, la- in the 24 hours, I believe that was on Friday. So it's pro- probably a little bit out of date by the time you hear this. And those sort of daily new cases, you know, just having a look at data from the Victorian Department of Health, those are still rising, that, that sort of 427 being the biggest daily increase that they've had. I mean, in some ways, the market kind of shrugged that off this week. Of course, I, I mentioned the index being up for the week. The index being up for the week you know, can certainly really be attributed to sort of a few key areas. And, you know, it was a really, really good week for some of our miners. So BHP, Rio, and especially probably worth mentioning Fortescue Metals, and they're up about 10% for the week. This surge among the miners, it really can be linked to data that sort of shows that iron ore imports to China have surged 35% across June. And, you know, China being our biggest trading partner, it's very significant news for the market when there's you know, that continued strong demand for commodities uh, from Australia. And I guess what's interesting about this is it comes despite some of the sort of negative rhetoric that we've talked about over the last couple of months between Australia and China. You know, remember how we were only, only felt just a few weeks ago we we're talking about, you know, tariffs and restrictions, things like Aussie imports, like sorry, Aussie exports like barley. You know, they don't, that doesn't seem to be affecting the sort of appetite for, for our iron ore. And remember, there's Brazil's Vale, which is their basically their huge, their equivalent of like a BHP, basically, out of Brazil. It's a massive mining conglomerate uh, based in Rio de Janeiro. 
you know, they've Brazil, just generally speaking, has been really, really affected by COVID-19, which has in turn, you know, it affected the ability for companies like Vale to actually, you know, export iron ore out to China because they're one of the other big iron exporters in the world, which of course then sort of has a flow on effect, which makes it better for us because, you know, increases the demand here for our Aussie miners. I guess the other thing that happened was that banks were all up too, and that sort of helped the index. So you got CBA, Westpac, NAB, ANZ all climbing across the week. So those banks and our miners, you know, being such a big components of our index, and you know, that's why you sort of see the overall market pulled upwards this week. And that kind of we'll touch on a little bit later because it sort of relates to the the listener question which I've got at the end. But keep that in mind, and and we'll get to that at the towards the end of the podcast. And although it hasn't hasn't been an upwards week for everyone you know you might not have really known about the upward week uh, if you were someone that invested primarily in the Aussie tech sector especially the sort of headline grabbing favorites like our buy now pay laters you know they've <laughs> they've had more of a bit of a shocker week especially zip I mean afterpay was down 6.8 percent this week but zip looks like it's down about 18 and a half percent over the course of the week you know, uh, there's Flexi Group that was down, Split it was down. I mean, the one that sort of managed to head in the opposite direction to all its other brothers and sisters in that sector was Open Pay Group. You know, they trade on the ASX under OPY, and at one point the the week sort of cl- uh, sorry the stock closed up about fifty percent at one point during the week. But I'm going to quickly dive into Zip because they did a quarterly release and update to the market. Now Zip has pulled back after coming to the market with a quarterly update that was. It was pretty good, but I guess this is the case where maybe investors potentially wanted a little bit more, expected a little bit more of Zip, which is important to remember as many of the stocks in the sort of buy now, pay later part of our market, they're very fast moving, very fast growing, but it, but are yet to actually turn a profit. Their performance is built around expectations of sort of continued high growth into the future and, that, and just their ability to capitalize on a shift in you know, consumer preference from traditional credit cards to buy now, pay later methods of, you know, transacting on goods. So back to the sort of zip quarter, quarterly update, you know, things look pretty good, right? So you've got financial year 20 uh, revenue is up 91% based, you know, against the previous financial year results. They've got transaction volume has lifted to $2.3 billion in the financial year 20, which is up 62% on the previous year. Customers are up to about 2.1 million domestically which is a 63% year-on-year increase. Their merchants are up too, so the number of actual retailers and providers that are you know, having Zip there as a service for customers is up 51% year-on-year to almost about 25,000 merchants, yet they're using the actual platform. Another point that the quarterly made was actually regarding monthly arrears, which actually reduced, it came down from about 1.55% in March to 1.33% in June. Now they define, Zip define arrears as a zip customer that is more than 60 days behind payment. They also then have a further definition for what they call bad debts, which is those that are about 180 days overdue. So bad debts is kind of, that's looking likely that it's going to be something that the company's going to have to wear. And I guess that, that little point there about monthly arrears falling between March and June is quite a really positive sign for investors because you know one of the concerns with this pandemic and economic slowdown is just the ability for customers to repay their debts. Yeah, so in the same way that banks would actually monitor, you know, their customers' ability to maintain home loan repayments right now, and you know, you've even seen banks give holidays to uh, some of their mortgage customers who 
maybe aren't in such good shape at the moment to make those payments. You know, companies like Zip, Zip, they're actually looking at their customers' ability to repay on the items they've purchased for their platform. And there's a bit of a fear that these buy now, pay laters would actually see some higher bad debt levels just because of the economic situation that our country has found itself in or in the rest of the world. And, you know, unlike applying for a mortgage with a bank, it's it's quite easy to effectively just borrow a couple grand from these services like Afterpay and Zip with no real check on what your financial status is. So people, um, a lot of the rhetoric was around maybe there's going to be a significant uptick in the bad debts because of the economic slowdown. But it seems to be sort of keeping steady, if not getting a little bit better for them at the moment. I read an IG markets piece on the quarterly update during the week, which I sort of want to credit here because it kind of sums it up best. The article is written by Shane Walton and it starts by saying that capital markets are built and destroyed by expectations. And maybe nowhere right now is this idea better illustrated than Australia's buy now, pay later sector. And that's it right there, right? The company, in this case, Zip, that you know they can come out with good results and positive momentum, which seems to be the case. But it might be that investors were expecting a little bit more. Might be, might be that they're comparing to others in the sector and maybe feel like that their, their company is maybe not doing as good as some of the others in the sector. Who knows? But I thought that summed it up best. And that's it. The market is a game of expectations and stocks like these buy now, pay laters have very, very high expectations. Okay, let's quickly touch on some sort of broader economic news in Australia. It's something that I've beaten the drum on a few times but I'm going to go back to this one which is we actually saw some more data regarding early super withdrawal this week or during the week and you remember last episode I actually commented on this and I said it'll be interesting to see what the new financial year brings because you know in terms of super withdrawals once the new financial year ticked over you you were actual if you were someone who's eligible for withdrawing from your super you would be eligible for another up to 10 grand withdrawal out of your super and it doesn't seem to be stopping right so there's there's sort of various numbers in the news regarding the number of Australians who have applied for a second release of super. You know, I saw Sydney Morin Herald said 350,000 people. The Australian said just over 300,000. I went on the APRA website, which that's how sad my life is. I literally spent some of my own personal time on the APRA website, as, as you do. And uh, the commentary from them is as follows. They wrote that in the period of the 29th of June to the 5th of July, there was about 511,000 applications received for withdrawal from superannuation. So that's the 29th of June to 5th of July. So of this 511,000, 165,000 were defined as initial applications, which means it is actually the first time that that person's doing it. Whether it was this financial year or, or the last, it was their first application. And 346,000 people made repeat applications, which, which, which would have mean that it would have been from the 1st of July because it was a new financial year and because they repeat, it meant that they actually had made an application for up to 10 grand in the previous financial year. And just to back that up just a little bit more, approximately about 2.7 million people in total made applications in the initial round during last financial year that just ended. I think one of the sort of disturbing numbers for me is the average amount uh, for these repeat applications. It's actually $8,904. That's the average amount applied for for repeat applications. 
and compare that to the average amount in initial applications, that, that was 7,476. So the average amount is actually increased at the moment. And remember, although the scheme allowed for people to apply, apply up to 10, that doesn't necessarily mean everyone did max it out. And you know, perhaps some people that might have wanted to max it out, they don't actually have enough in their super to, to draw 10K twice. But yeah, it's slightly worrying, I think, that the average amount applied for in these repeat applications is ticked up higher. And I'll say it again, this was not a stimulus. And I think I'm sort of worried about the long-term ramifications this will be. And I think it will be looked back on um, sort of from a historical hindsight perspective as being a sort of a bad policy that was come out of, or maybe it was a kind of policy that jumped the gun a little bit too much. But yeah, I, I was just still concerned about that long-term ramifications that, that people have because... And again, I'm not making the judgment of people that did withdraw. There's plenty of people I'm sure that withdrew it because they are in dire economic condition. But yeah, just that over over the lifetime of their superannuation, I'm worried about the impact that'll have. But we'll jump into our listener question for the week, which our listener question comes from Chris in Queensland. Thank you for the question, Chris. Remember, for those of you that are listening right now, if you did have questions, you can shoot them through to Market Pulse Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, his question is, what calculations go into the ASX 200? Why is it referred to in a percentage gain or loss as well as they talk about points, gain or loss? What does it actually mean? That's a really good question. I remember being asked this uh, about two years ago now. I was actually working for a stockbroker and I was doing a presentation and I got this pretty much this question and I was actually stumped because I had no idea to be, <laughs> to be honest with you and I felt a bit stupid because I you know, I felt like I should have known the answer to that one. But and I only ever spoke about percentage rises and falls in the index and I never really f- referred to the points. I guess to explain the reason I don't refer to points is because it doesn't seem as relatable or useful for investors compared to this sort of percentage increase or decrease. Like if I said the ASX 200 is up 3% this week, that sort of means a little bit more than if I said it was up 80 points or whatever. And so before I explain the meaning a bit further, let's clarify what the index is or specifically our main benchmark in Australia. And you'll notice I I used the word benchmark before. In Australia, this is the ASX 200. This is the primary index that you will hear being referred to by analysts or commentators or news anchors, you know, whatever it is. It didn't used to be the ASX 200. It used to be the All Lords, which you'll still hear the All Lords being referred to. But the ASX 200 is now the sort of primary benchmark that in Australia for how the market's going at least. The All Lords is a little bit different. It it's compromises the top 500 stocks in the Australian market, which covers most of them in terms, of, in terms of value, I suppose. Okay, so why have an index at all? Let's talk about that for a, for a little bit. So there's a couple of things. The word benchmark is a good place to start. It gives professional invest, investors and you know, fund managers, brokers, even just people like myself, you know, some kind of understanding of how that overall market is behaving. And you know, I can understand how my investments are tracking and stacking up relative to the benchmark, in this case, the ASX 200. There are also fund managers that operate under models where they sort of aim to deliver returns that beat that benchmark, so beat the index. But in terms of how it's weighted, so how it's, yeah, how it's actually valued. So if you're looking up the ASX 200, you'll see it referred to as a market capitalization weighted, which means that the emphasis is placed on the market cap or the value of the companies in the ASX, which is how the top 200 are decided on. So it's the top 200 by market cap. And market cap is decided 
was calculated on the current share price of a company and you times that by the number of shares outstanding, which is just a fancier word for saying the number of shares in that company. So shares outstanding is the number of shares in that company. So quick refresher on that. So if I said that company A has 1,000 shares and I said company B has 1,000 shares, it sounds about even, but then I tell you that company A's share price is $100 and company B's share price is $10, well, it turns out company A is worth about $100,000, which is that share price of $100 times by the 1,000 shares in that company. And company B is actually worth $10,000 under the exact same calculation. So they're not even at all. Company A is worth 10 times more than company B, which would be in an index like the ASX 200, company A would be ranked higher because it's worth a lot more and have a lot more impact on the overall movement of the index. So instead of company A's and B's, a real example is CSL. So you can you can download a list of the ASX 200 at any time. I downloaded a spreadsheet on them uh, just the other day, and it's it is slightly out of date. It was it was as of the first of June 2020, but it's it's going to do for the example, and it it shows the market cap of all 200 of the constituents. Now CSL, I mentioned it's our biggest healthcare stock. It was the biggest stock on the ASX right now in terms of market cap and CSL has a market cap of about $130 billion. But the total market cap of all the 200 companies is about $1.7 trillion. So CSL with its $130 billion valuation alone is worth about 7.5%, you know, which you get by dividing its market cap into the entire index's market cap. So it's worth about 7.5% of the whole index. So compare that to say something else that people know very well, which is JB Hi-Fi. Their market cap is about 4.3 billion. So under the same calculation, they make up 0.25% of the entire index. So if CSL is worth about 7.5% of the index, what that means is CSL has a much bigger pull on the direction of the index because especially compared to JB Hi-Fi because simply it's just a bigger company and the ASX 200 is market capitalization weighted. So I guess because of this, an index can also mask what is happening to smaller companies. So if on the news, a reporter says, oh, it was a really good day on the market, the ASX is up 3%. Yeah, maybe that's just those big companies helping to pull that up to that point. And maybe if you had actually looked into it specifically and say looked up JB Hi-Fi, you might've found that it actually fell that day. So to drive the point home a little bit more, the top 10 companies in the ASX 200 so the top 10 biggest, they make up 40% of the total index value. So those top 10 are CSL, Combank, BHP, Westpac, NAB, ANZ, West Farmers, Fortescue Metals, Woolworths and Macquarie Bank. Those 10 have significant power towards the overall direction of where the index is going. The point thing, the whole points thing, like being at say 6,000 points or the ASX 200, falling or gaining points. It's a little bit weird though. It's a hard one to explain because to get the index, while they have to calculate the total market cap of the index, which would change daily due to you know movements in the share prices, they can't just run with a figure like that, say on the news or whatever, because the total value is of the ASX 200 is around 1.7 trillion. It's just, it's just a lot to fathom, right? It doesn't mean much to anyone. So indices use what is called an index divisor, which is, it's basically a number in this case for the ASX 200, where the market cap is then divided by the divisor to get a much simpler number, such as 6,000 points. 
And I mean, maybe I need to get a guest on to explain that in a little bit more detail one day, but the divisor that is used as far as I've ever seen from my research and reading, it isn't exactly public as far as I know. The index is managed by a company called Standard & Poor's, which is a US-based ratings agency. And it's also why you'll see the index in Australia referred to as the S&P ASX 200. So the S&P standing for Standard & Poor's. They're the ones that kind of own or manage what that index is. And Standard & Poor's managed that divisor that they use and also adjust it. So as far as I've seen from my reading, it's not something that's always out there for people to know, but it's also something that changes all the time. They always have to make adjustments to it. So hopefully that helps you understand the index a little bit better and how it's calculated. It's a weird one for sure, but my advice is sort of focus on percentage gain and loss and take note of more than just the bigger guys in the index because they would influence the index and the market in one way or another, but that might not be representative of some of the smaller companies that make up the 200. But thank you very much for sending in your question and thank you to everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. We're in the 20s now, been around for a few months. So if you do have any reviews or feedback, jump onto your app store of preference and leave a rating or review. Share the word around as I keep mentioning, tell your friends about it. But other than that, have a great week or weekend. My name is Dion Gribben. Cheers for listening. See you next week.